Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate, one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Have you ever been sitting in the therapy room and felt the pressure to be the expert? to answer a client's question, but you just didn't know, you weren't confident, you didn't feel like you could have that expert role. Well, that's a normal feeling. And if you felt that way, whether you're young in your training or a seasoned pro, today is the episode for you as we continue with our pioneering series and talk to the great Harleen Anderson. Many of you know her from her collaborative language systems approach, but she's much more than that. In the 1980s, Anderson and her late colleague, Harry Galusian, pioneered a new technique that used to relate to clients within therapy through language and collaboration without the use of diagnostic labels. This approach clearly places the client in control as expert of the therapy session and asks the therapist to focus on the present and ignore any preconceived notions they may have about the client or the system. This approach was first developed for use within families, but Harleen, as she'll talk about today, has gone on to pioneer these techniques and approaches in a variety of different organizational systems. Dr. Harley Anderson is the founding member of the Houston Galveston Institute, the Taos Institute as well. She is recognized internationally as being at the leading edge of postmodern collaborative practices. She takes her tools, her insights, her curiosity, and engaging conversational style with her wherever she goes to help professionals turn theory into new and often surprising possibilities for their clients, students, and organization. You'll hear her talk about today her own belief in learning as a lifelong process, inviting, encouraging, and challenging people to be inquisitive, creative, authentic, and open to ever-present possibilities, both in themselves and in others. Harleen has authored and co-authored numerous professional writings, including her seminal work, Conversation, Language, and Possibilities, A Postmodern Approach to Therapy. Among her many awards, the prestigious 2000 Outstanding Contributions to Marriage and Family Therapy Award from the AAMFT, as well as the 1998 Lifetime Achievement Award from the Texas Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. We'll be back after the interview with Harleen. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. A real treat today. Someone I call a postmodern pioneer. Continuing our pioneer series, I am so delighted to be joined by Dr. Harleen Anderson of Collaborative Language Systems and much more. And Harleen, if you've ever listened to the show, you know the first question we always ask model developers is the the origin story, how it came to be. How did you get into wanting to become a clinician and a therapist? Well, in a way, it's serendipity sums it up. I started out studying psychology, having the idea I wanted to be a psychologist. 
I worked in what in Texas Seminole Community Mental Health Programs and the School Psychology Program. And then I started working in the pediatric department at the medical school in Galveston, Texas. And as soon as I hit campus, I just kept hearing people talking about something called family therapy. I'd never heard of it in my training in psychology or in my previous experiences. So I was very curious. One of the nicknames I had as a child growing up was Nosy Rosie. So I had to find out what this was about. So there was a posting of a training starting. So I thought, okay, I'll sign up. And if I like it and it's appealing and seems helpful, I'll stick with it. And if not, nothing lost. So I signed up and I went to the very first session. And Eli, what I've said and written about before is that it's like I found something I did not know I was looking for. And that is, in that very first session, I began to find and have access to a language, a vocabulary that invited me not only to have words and concepts for some of my previous experiences, but to take the time, the luxury of pausing and stepping back and reflecting on that. And when you think systemically, you can really think no other way, I always tell people. So here you were, and you have this linear pathology-based thinking of, of clinical psychology, and then you have this whole world of systems. And give us a kind of, let's date ourselves in time and place. So we're in Texas, and I imagine we're in the golden age of family therapy sometime in the 70s when you're seeing this, right? And I started at the medical school, I think it was 1970. And so it would have been 70, 71 that I started in the family therapy training. And at that time, it was the team organized by Harry Golishin and his colleagues, which had grown out of the multiple impact therapy research program that a team in psychiatry, including Harry, had begun in the late 1950s that continued through the early 1960s. It was really the one of the early research programs in family therapy to be funded. So I trace a lot of the ideas that I find valuable today back to that history. Think of Philadelphia. We think of Philadelphia Child Guidance and Sal Mnuchin. We think of Mm -hmm. Palo Alto. We think of MRI. And certainly when I think of you, I think of Houston, Texas and the Galveston Institute. Talk about Harry Galusian, who obviously you will always be linked with, uh, very important in the development of collaborative language systems. Talk about how you all collaborated, pardon the pun, and uh, what you learned from him, especially early on in your training. Okay, well, he was a very uh, inspiring person, very uh, academic, intellectual, very curious. And I think he either invited curious people to join with him, or he brought out the curiosity in others. But anyway, the curiosity was there. And he was the kind of person who could talk about anything, anytime, anywhere. He could be very irreverent of psychotherapy in general and then soon of family therapy. He was just a very, very interesting person, very engaging, very, I would say very nice. It's kind of an overused word, but most people liked him unless they were put off by some of his sometimes flippant responses. When did you move from like a student role to really his his collaborator and writing partner and really model developer? Well, I would say probably for sure fully by 1975-ish. What happened is that in the, the seminar, it's a short, another short side story, is that you went to the seminar and you were told, we were all told that unless we were doing family therapy, we could not continue. And I thought, well, I'm here to learn how to do family therapy, so what am I going to do? So I went back 
and I talked to my psychologist supervisor in the pediatric department and I said, Bob, I really want to continue studying this. Will you go to this seminar with me? And for some reason, he agreed that he would. So we both went back the next time he enrolled. And then, of course, we had to see a family. So we decided the very next family that was referred to our division in pediatrics, and at that time it was one of the Lyndon Johnson War on Poverty programs, that we would call a family. And I still remember that family to this day. It was a Cuban family that had immigrated to Galveston with a little six-year-old son who presented as the patient, so to speak, in the pediatric department. So we went back with our news about our family, and by the luck of the draw, we had Harry as our supervisor. So I was very intrigued with him and his cleverness. Not that he did magical kinds of things, but it was the day in which there were so many family therapy gurus, you'd go to these conferences and they would do a session, and oh my gosh, it was like fireworks went off, and and um, call them, attend them on the weekend conference, and then try to do it on Mondays. But So I just began paying very careful attention to everything he did clinically, to the way that he taught, to the way that he interacted with people in formal and informal settings. He soon became my mentor, and I began uh, working with him and doing supervision. Right, and at, at the time, we're talking about your major structural, strategic, experiential models and the critique on the field, obviously, in this very male-dominated, patriarchal, almost woman-mother-bashing. Now, were you? what was your experience of that before you, know, you were part of this huge postmodern wave that we'll get to? I mean, you were learning these traditional models. Did, were you offended by those back then? What was it like learning that? knowing who you've become and what you've meant to our field. I wasn't offended. It was really kind of a a two-sided coin of the training, is that we were learning all of the things that had been done and that were currently being developed in family therapy at the time, while at the same time still influenced by the practice that the Galveston team had developed called multiple impact therapy, which had, uh, what, uh, semblances of non-hierarchy, I mean, a, a pastoral counselor in training could be on the team. The whole notion of having a consultant to the team, having conversations that the families that we worked with would listen in on. So there were, there were a lot of new things developing at the same time. And what happened is that because of Harry and the team's curiosity, we read not only what was happening in family therapy, but a lot of things outside of family therapy, whether that was in the broader social sciences, the natural sciences, physics, philosophy, etc., and particularly became interested in the notions of language and dialogue. So in, in a way, it, it was an emergent process, which it really still is. Yeah, we're going to talk about the evolution. An- another name that you're many times linked with is Tom Anderson. What are your best memories and uh, your contributions with Tom? Well, Tom was a, a dear colleague as well, and he was influenced by our work, and we were influenced by his work. It was particularly, and again, like with Harry, influenced by Tom as a person and watching how he interacted with people, what he did clinically, how he noticed things that other people not ever notice. His clients really engaged with him and really responded, whether he was working with a a couple engaged in a violent relationship or whether he was working with a family who brought in a little child. It was just amazing. And we both, with Tom and with Harry and with our respective teams brought in the notion of 
therapy being more open and something less private and sacred and bringing in colleagues and of course a lot of that's influenced by the early some of the early training in family therapy. Okay, this is the first time you all felt you were really onto something kind of building on the multiple impact therapy. I mean, you were part of a movement, so I don't know if you considered yourself postmodern at that point, but when did you realize that we are doing something fundamentally different that is going to along with models like narrative therapy and solution focused therapy is really going to change the way moving as therapist, as expert, to therapist, as collaborator, co-constructor, when did you realize it was the sea change moment for family therapy? Eli, that really began to happen in the late 70s and in the early 80s, and certainly by the middle 80s, it was really becoming quite firm. Tom Anderson was a part of an aha moment for Harry and me. He had a conference in Northern Norway where he invited some family therapy teams. He had Boscolo and Chakine. He had uh, Lynn Hoffman, Fred Steer. He had Von Glossersfeld. He had a variety of people who were contributing either clinically, Macharana, of course, or, or uh, academically to some of these edges that were beginning to develop in family therapy. And one of the things that Harry and I began to realize was that here we were with all of these cyberticians who we had studied their works, like Ben Glassersfields, Von Forrester, and including Macharana at that point. But what they said didn't fit with what they did. So it was like, as I said, kind of an aha moment. Maybe we're not systemic therapists. Maybe we're not constructivist therapists. And so we just made that declaration. And that was about the time we had already written the paper that was published in Family Process in 88, where we really, I think that was our first kind of public break with using the term systemic. But I think what can happen is that people can get fixed, they can get compartmentalized and continue doing the same thing over and over again and not continuing to what I call take the luxurious moments of pausing and reflecting and uh, on your own work and being a reflective and reflexive practitioner where you learn from what you're doing. You experiment. It's like your work is a laboratory in itself. And it was listening to those clients and reflecting on your work that is, is the base of the model. So in your opinion, what concepts from collaborative language systems are still the most relevant and most enduring even in this day? Okay, well, I think the notions of relationships and conversations are so central in that the kinds of relationships we develop with people inform and influence the kinds and qualities of conversations we can have with them and vice versa. Of course, very familiar notions that were around for a long time, the whole notion that that there's really no such thing as taking a purely objective position that we're all participants in, in uh, creating what we observe and our descriptions and our interpretations of those. And the whole idea of the professional not being the expert and realizing that the people we work with, whether that's a client in a therapy room, a student in a classroom, a member of a, of a board and an organization, that they bring their own histories, their own influences, their own wisdom, their own expertise, and that what it really is is a blending and using of the expertise that the professional brings and the expertise that the quote-unquote client brings. Yes, this idea of not not knowing and being a dialogue. I think young therapists especially love this notion because you mean 
it's a relief to them that they can join the client where they're at. The client can be the expert to their own life and that they don't have to be this expert role. When you started training clinicians in this model, what do you remember as the reception? Because this was way different. Again, a seed change moment than therapist is expert. This is therapist is co-constructor. You don't have to be an expert. In fact, if you are, if it's hierarchical, it's against very premise of this type of work. So what was the initial reception like when you started training? Because you're a great trainer as well, when you started training therapists. The reception was always enthusiasm along with some reservation because it was such a shift to what they had learned in graduate school or what they were learning in graduate school because we had an internship program. Well, they had an internship program when I started working and training with them in the early 70s. So it was, it's like, Okay, how do you begin to let go of something that has been so dear to you? How do you begin to let go of wanting to have a set of questions that you can depend on to ask when you go into a therapy room? So, for example, I can give two brief stories. One with not knowing is that we would see clients and use a team, much like in the the typical family therapy mode, although we would have the team in the room with us. So we would pause and we would have reflections from the team. So we called it a reflecting process, not a reflecting team. Then the family would leave and then we would have our discussion afterwards with the training team and they would always want to know from Harry and from me or whoever else was the co-facilitator, well, what, what are you really thinking? What do you think is really going on with that mother and that family? And we would basically just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, you know, we don't know. If you want to know that, and if that's still important for you the next time this family comes in, perhaps you want to think about saying something. You know, after y'all left, we talked about our session together and some of the things you were talking about. And there were some questions that we were left with. And if you don't mind, might we ask you some of these questions? So in other words, they were very open, what I call very public, with having these private conversations that the family at that time was not privileged to, you know, in these team meetings afterwards. So they began to experiment with doing that, and it worked really, really well. Families are really, really curious about what therapists are thinking. Another part of the story is that early on I started a small research project that I did really all around the world. I talked with clients that I might do a consultation with. I talked with other therapist clients and just asked them about their experiences of therapy and the therapist. And what would they identify as the successful features of the therapy or of the therapist, uh, the person of the therapist. And I learned a lot of things. And one of them was this client curiosity. What was the therapist really thinking about me? What did the therapist put in their notes? What did the student therapist tell their supervisor? So they were very, very curious. They were also curious about where uh, therapist questions came from. I have one story I write about in one of my books, and it's a man in Sweden who had seen maybe five or six different psychiatrists who had been hospitalized many times. And he was telling a story of one psychiatrist who he said, you know, he asked me the same question over and over again. I bet he asked me the same question five times in five different ways. And I kept trying to get the answer right, but I could never get the answer right. And he said, if he had only told me what he wanted to know, I could have told him I could have gotten the answer right. And that just really stuck with me. But it's just one example of the things that I heard over and over again. And people feeling stripped of their dignity, stripped of their pride by therapists. Therapists who they described as intrusive, like 
You go into someone's home and you start looking in their medicine cabinet. So I learned a lot of things by asking clients themselves, you know, what were the things that worked in therapy and what were the things that didn't work and what were the characteristics, although I really don't think in terms now of characteristics of people, but what were the characteristics of therapists that you found helpful that you wouldn't mind seeing again or therapists that you hope you never, ever meet again? What else do you remember from those those early conversations with clients that really became the, the basis of the model and not just being curious? And yeah, one could argue that it's hard to get into the this profession of being a skilled helper, uh, a therapist of any type without being curious. And in some of our clients, I always tell my students, they're they're hard to like. So if you can't like them, you at least got to be curious about them and, and, and vice versa. Curiosity is a two-way street in this collaborative kind of dialogue. What else do you remember in those early interviews asking your clients? It, it fits with some of the experiences we were having with the people in training, the learners, who would be working with a client that they really didn't like. And I would always say, I think it's unethical to work with someone that you don't like. So I would suggest that you try to find something about that person that you can like and go from there. And if you can't find anything about them that you don't like, well, then we'll find them another therapist. And I really feel very strongly about that. I said, would you like to have a therapist sitting across from you that didn't like you and that was sitting there judging you, thinking that you were some kind of despicable person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this really made a difference for people, the, the learners, in terms of realizing that you don't have to, that liking does not mean you have to agree with someone, you have to condone their lifestyle, et cetera. It really doesn't even mean like. It means that you have to be able to respect that person as a unique individual. Give us a story of how you were able to do that with someone that maybe on the surface was difficult or not the most receptive. Because you seem like, uh, you know, we do not know each other well, but you seem like a very authentic person, which is another therapist quality, uh, no matter what model you're practicing. But you have to be authentic. You have to be real because I don't care what the education level or developmental level of the client, they can sniff out what's not real. So tell us how you got over the hump with someone that maybe wasn't that likable on the surface. I think it really came from curiosity, Eli. One of the things that I talk about is people would ask, okay, well, tell me what questions to ask, particularly new learners. They want to write the questions to ask on the palm of their hand to take in the therapy room with them. And so what I would do is I would say, okay, with a new family coming in, what I want you to do, I want you to go in the room with this family and I forbid you to try to do family therapy. I forbid you to try to fix them to gather facts or details. All I want you to do is sit down with them and learn a little bit about them and get used to them and let them get used to you and let them know something about you. If they want to know if you're married or not, where you went to school, I think that's perfectly okay. Keep in mind that we are human beings working with other human beings and that some of the concepts in psychotherapy that emerged back in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s are not relevant for our world today. We live in a very, very different world. And what I would find is that they they were amazed. They could go in, they could relax, they didn't have to worry about what I or any other supervisor was going to think about what they did or what they wrote in their report. And it just made things so much easier for new learners to be able just to sit down and be natural, to be spontaneous, and to use your word to be authentic. 
to be able to be present as a person. Yeah, it takes the pressure off of both the client system and the therapist, and they can just interact and be. Now, what about a client or a system, Harleen, that they want, right? They want the expert. Tell me what to do. I, I'm coming here and I'm paying you money because I want to know what to do or how to handle this situation or how to handle my loved one or how to parent my child. What if you have a client that wants you to be directive? And that is not unusual, whether it's the client or the referring person. People come to us for help and they expect us to be able to tell them what to do. And Eli, we have participated in creating that discord. We have participated in promoting ourselves as experts, experts on other people's lives and what people should or shouldn't do, what's the right thing or what's the wrong thing. So what I talk about in terms of working with uh, new learners, whether they're just learning the way that I work as new people to psychotherapy or whether there's someone who's been practicing psychotherapy for decades and are curious about their approach. Being curious about another person and paying really careful attention to what they're saying, listening to their story, and beginning to ask questions that are informed by their story, which help you learn more about what they're saying, it begins to allow you to move away from sitting in any kind of judgmental or pejorative position or having those kinds of ideas about another person. Another thing that you can say is that we participate in creating the people sitting in front of us. In other words, we participate in what they say, in what they do, how they do it. We invite clients to do things that perhaps we don't want them to do or that some therapists might not want them to do, if that makes any sense. In other words, they're, they're responding to us just as we're responding to them. The other powerful thing in modeling that with one client, if you're dealing with a system, then you create that dialogue between people. It's not just the therapist and the individual. Like you can help a parent and a child to have a more collaborative dialogue by you modeling with the, in this case, the parent, how to do that. It's a beautiful systemic ripple effect. Absolutely. And as kind of a story associated with that is that talking about some of the uh, early and, and very popular models of family therapy, we were always very admiring and intrigued by the work of the Palo Alto group, the MRI group in California. Anytime that we liked somebody's work, we invited them to come spend time with us. So we did that with so many different people. And what we found was is that we were very intrigued at the time, and this was the early 70s, of their interest in and use of language in what I call almost a strategic sense. The idea that if you could speak the same, the family's language, the family would be more amenable to uh, carrying out your homework assignment, for example. So we decided we were going to become experts in learning and speaking in the client's language. Well, what happened is that we became so interested in what people were saying is that we found ourselves talking with each person in a family, one person at a time. And I found myself almost like, oh my gosh, I hope they don't think I'm getting ready to sit in their lap. I'm leaning forward so much and so curious about what they're saying is that we would, we would become so engaged with that person and we began to realize that the other family members were listening very intently. And they would sometimes say things like, you know, I've never heard you say it that way before. I always thought you thought X, Y, and Z and not A, B, C. So we began to realize that we were creating this listening, speaking, kind of back and forth process and the very importance of having time for people not only to listen to others, but to listen to themselves. And although I'm speaking very quickly now, I, I tend to do that often. But when I'm 
doing clinical work, I are working with students, I speak slowly. That it's important to have time to speak and time to listen, time to form what you think you might want to say, because you never know what's going to come out of your mouth, and time to think about what you've heard or what you think you have heard before you respond to it. This makes me think of one of your concepts, living with uncertainty, that not only do you not have to rush and you're having this mutually transforming dialogue, you don't have to have the answers. It's the process of the dialogue that is important. It is not very goal-directed. You mentioned MRI, and I thought of, uh, on the surface, the many, many differences between MRI and collaborative language systems, but how you use language. Language was important to them to join, to be strategic, to do something. For you, it was a much more authentic use of language to gain access to the client and their experience. And to be able to engage with them, yes. And we also found that learners, as you've said a couple of times, really began to relax because they didn't have to have the answer. They didn't have to know the question to ask. All they had to do was be able to sit there and be themselves and talk with someone. And to point out, particularly in teamwork, you can, you can see the differences between people. We're not all alike. What's important is that you gravitate toward a way of working that fits for you, where you can feel authentic, be spontaneous, be flexible. You don't have to work the way that we're working at the Houston Galveston Institute. You can work the way you want to. I often think in training therapists, the way many MFT training programs start, and they start with these classic models that are very directive and therapist is expert, but really a reverse way is to teach a more postmodern co-construction approach first where you're just being yourself. Because unless you're comfortable with yourself as therapist and you can dialogue with the client, it's going to be very hard to play act therapist. You know, people say fake it till you make it, but it doesn't really work that way. A client really picks up the authenticity and the interpersonal ease. The other thing I think that is real essential in your work is sometimes in the nature of trying to be a professional or trying to act like we know more, we we nod our head and, and say we understand when we really don't. And the greatest approach, uh, the greatest part of this type of perspective is if, if you don't know, not only do you not have to know, but you can ask and you be, be curious. I don't know what that's like. I, I don't have that experience. You may be from a different background, social, cultural than me. So the worst thing I could do is nod and say I know what it's like when I don't. So I think the model, one of its best qualities, it gives permission to be curious and to not know. Yes. And then I said a little bit about where not knowing came from. And we really just emerged out of the way we responded to trainees' questions. And then we began to think, you know, we really do not know. You can you cannot get inside another person's head. You do not know what's behind their words. And the influence of hermeneutics was this whole notion of that we're interpretive beings. We are always interpreting another person's bodily movements, their gestures, their eyes, their words. Uh, we're interpreting what we think is behind their words. And the best way of learning more about someone is to just ask. And what do you say to people that would say, well, we got to have some goal directed. We have to know where this therapy is going. What's the end point? What are we working on? How do you push back on someone that really wants to have a kind of desired outcome of the therapy? Well, I say that I think it's important, and I always want to know when I sit down with someone new that I'm speaking with, again, whether it's a student in a classroom or doing research or someone on the member of a organization's team or a client, I want to know why we're together, why we're talking, what are we hoping to accomplish, what do they want to accomplish. And 
because that's that's a starting point. And it's not that I'm married to whatever they say, because I'm sure that you've experienced that most people change, if you want to call it a goal, the goal or what they want or why they're, why they're seeking consultation or therapy. That'll change as you go along with each other. So I would always say that my goal is not a goal for the client in the sense of a content goal or a typical outcome or resolution. But my goal is to create a collaborative relationship and a generative conversational process that has the possibility, the potential for something to be different. And I don't know what that difference will be, but I trust from my experience that the client and I will create that as we go along together. And I'm sure, Eli, that you have experienced clients who come back to a session and they've done something that you would have never thought to suggest that they do, and it worked. Yeah, you've given them the space to take this self-leadership in a way that if probably you were more directive, it, it couldn't have happened. It's a wonderful thing. That's why I think this model fits so well for early therapists or therapists in training as well as, as more expert therapists. Because the more you do the work, you realize that at the end of the day, you need to be a credible source for the client. But as I say, they're going to do all the heavy lifting. It's ultimately them that is going to do the work. This style is, is, is helpful in establishing a strong alliance too, as far as the, the bond component of psychotherapy and just the, the task, how therapy is structured. This is going to be a conversation and you are your own expert. Yeah, I've, it's certainly a, a good fit for many people. Now, in interviewing these model developers over the last couple of years, to a T, every single one of them has taken this expertise that they have and expanded it to larger system. So you are still so vital. I am not going to give away your age, but I, I am amazed at your level of productivity. I want you to talk about the last maybe 15, 20 years of your career and how you've expanded taking this way of collaborative dialogue and expanded it to other systems outside of psychotherapy. I will say it, it began before Harry's death because when you work with uh, people who are referred by community agencies or community systems, they eventually begin to ask you to consult with them or do training. So it began at working with mental health systems, with university departments, psychiatry departments, that kind of thing. And then it just began to happen, I guess, organically or again, rather serendipitously. You might be at a cocktail party and someone asks you what you do. And you begin talking about it and they become curious and they, they might say, well, you know, at my office... We, I have an employee who da, 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 da. What would you say? What would you do? And I said, well, I'm not sure that I can tell you right now or have any ideas for you, but I'm certainly willing, if you want to, to sit down with you and we can talk about this. So it be, really began in that way. So, and then uh, because people began reading about what Harry and I had published and what I was publishing, began being invited to various parts of the world. And people also interested like you just asked, you know, what are you doing in addition to therapy? And then they find out, and the next thing you know, you're you're the presenter at a conference on coaching or on employee assistance programs or on working with prison systems. It, it just it just expands that way from relationships and conversations. It was very, very organic. So I do a variety of things. Right now with this virus, I'm not flying around doing the work I that usually do, flying around on airplanes. I'm zooming around. <laughs> As a matter of fact, when, when we finish our conversation, I'm zooming to Sao Paulo, Brazil, 
where I'm going to present at a, a conference they're having late afternoon yeah, there. Technology so, yeah. is amazing. Yes. Yeah. It, is. it gives you it another is. way to have the dialogue and stay connected. Mm-hmm. So it kind of organically found you. You weren't really looking for it. So what, in addition to this consulting, like I always, when we're talking to model developers and, you know, we've talked a lot about the techniques and the enduring things, but mm-hmm. people like to hear about the person behind the model and you are so affable and engaging. It's clearly not an act. What do you do that cannot be picked up in a book or a journal article? What do you want listeners to know about you? And what is the secret to remaining so vital, you know, nearly five decades into your career? I pay attention and I watch people. Usually if I go someplace, they'll invite you to have dinner the night before. I I talk to people. I get to know a little bit about them. So the whole idea of being collaborative and relational begins even before I arrive. I mean, it begins on the exchange between people. So I pay attention and then I am able to pick up on things that I've learned in those brief what seem like uh, innocent conversations, and they're social conversations, I can bring that into my work. I always develop this habit of standing at the door, welcoming people, greeting them, walking around the room as as people are sitting down and just saying, hi, where are you from? Are you from Beijing? Or did you come from some other place in China? Or are you a Houstonian? Or, oh, no, really? How did you get to Texas? So I I begin to engage with people in in that way. It helps me remember people. People like it when you remember them, notice them, or have eye contact with them when they're out in the broader audience because you have had this brief conversation with them, only if it was for 30 seconds. So that's one of the things that I think about. Also, we ask people about their family of origin. Now, were you always uh, interpersonally skilled and curious as a young person? Or I'm curious what your family of origin looked like and what were the dynamics and how that influenced your growth and development as a therapist? Sure, that's a fair question. My father's family were from Sweden and my mother's from Germany. So I have those kind of genetic components to me in terms of one thinks in terms of inheriting cultural aspects. So, and my parents were very ordinary people. They, father had his own business and my mother worked in his business with him, basically ran the business, the, you know, the office part of the business for him. They both came from a line of parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles who had their own businesses and ran their own businesses. And maybe that had to do with the time that the generations before them came to the United States and grew up, that that's what you did. You started your own business. But, but that kind of entrepreneurial spirit was always there. My parents were very people, very generous so, and I didn't know this till years later, but it was like in elementary school, if my parents somehow, the principal would contact them and say, there's a child here who needs glasses, can you help? They would always help. They would always do that. If there was someone in the drill team who couldn't afford a uniform, they would they would pitch in and help. It's And it was middle class income. I mean, just because my father had his own business, we were not above anybody else economically. But they were just generous and they were kind and my house was the kind that all my friends wanted to come to. Everybody liked my parents and thought that they were so nice. My mother was a great cook. My father was always nice and generous and taking us water skiing and all of my friends. So it it was a very open family. I'm the oldest of two daughters. My sister owns her own business. She has a staffing agency and 
that she's had for now over 20 years. My parents are both deceased. Were they around long enough to see your success? Another thing we always ask is you'd be surprised that both of extended family members and spouses and children of famous systemic thinkers and family therapists don't fully grasp how important their loved one is to the field because many times like you, the loved one is humble or they have a really good work-life balance and they don't talk about that yeah. stuff at home. But did your family get to understand how, how really big an impact you made in this profession? I am not sure the extent that my parents did. They were certainly aware that I was, you know, flitting around, flying around all over the place and beginning to write, of course, while they were still alive. But in terms of kind of the explosion over the last 15 years, they were not around for that. My sister, my friends, my colleagues are aware of what I do and how fortunate I have been in the career path that I have chosen and the energy and time and passion that I put into it. You know, it's like, what was it, two nights ago, I think it was like 7.30, my husband calls down to, I have a home office where I am right now in Houston, and he said, are you still in your office? Are you coming up <laughs> tonight? And I said, I will. I said, I've still got a few more emails to finish, but my husband's one of my greatest supporters. You've always had that support from your family and really probably helps you to be such a, a conduit for other people beyond the textbooks and things like that. Uh, how do you want to be remembered in our profession? I would think as someone who mentored other people, who recognized other people's potential and really helped them nurture that, I would say that's important for me and that I have influenced people to be what I call or Donald Schoen would call it a reflective, reflexive practitioner that you learn from your work and that you never stay still or stagnant. I've also, uh, I don't know if you know, I've created a journal. I think we're in our, well, we're on our 10th issue, so we've been going now for about 12 years. And I've created Yeah, t talk about that. I do know, but I bet a lot of our listeners don't. Talk about the journal. Hey, International Journal of Collaborative Dialogic Practices. It's an open access journal that's sponsored by the Taos Institute and the Houston Galveston Institute. It's totally run by volunteers. We do have a website. I'm in the process now of producing issue 10. It's a bilingual journal, so the articles are in English and Spanish. And we have had some abstracts and a couple of papers in Chinese. So we're getting ready to make a shift to invite people to submit their articles in English and in their language of choice, and that we'll publish it in both languages, not just English and Spanish. So that's a labor of love. And then an international training program, there are, it's called the International Certificate Program in Collaborative Dialogic Practices. We have 17 programs in 14 different countries, including several in South America, two in uh, China, one in Taiwan, a couple in the United States. People internationally are really interested in these ideas and so helping support people who are doing similar work, who want to do this kind of work, who want to do teaching and training is important. So I guess I would say part of my legacy would be in the next generation of doing whatever they do and it won't be exactly what I'm doing of course and hopefully not. Well, you have been amazing to talk to, and it has been a nice dialogue and conversation. And I'll also point out for our listeners, you can find out 
everything Harleen is up to, including these places she's traveled and spoken at and what's coming up at harleenanderson.com. And where can they find the journal from your webpage? Tell us once again where to find they can, the journal. They should, yeah, they should be able to link it from the, the first page. There's also a news section that tells some of the events that I'm involved in or announces some other people's events that would be similar. Several Facebook pages connected with my work and collaborative dialogue. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, I'm looking at that right now as we speak. It's laid out beautiful. There's also lots of good video on there of you talking about different things. I'm looking right now. There's Harleen and Tom talking about dialogues and postmodern connections and looks looks like a great retrospective spinning your career in all these different contexts that we've talked about today. It's been so wonderful to talk to you and I cannot thank you enough, Harleen, for being part of this podcast and really our uh, postmodern pioneer, as I like to call you, but I, I couldn't imagine uh, completing a series like this without talking to you. Eli, back with you. So concludes another installment of the Pioneer Series. It's a postmodern pioneering series with Dr. Harleen Anderson. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I did conducting it. For all things Harleen, go to harleenanderson.com. Couldn't get any more simple than that. And there you'll see what she's up to, including all of her travels, and as I was saying, her resources, including a list of her publications, a nice video archive, an article archive, and she really makes it accessible, and you can find a lot about what's going on. She also referenced something she co-founded, the Taos Institute. The tagline there is creating promising futures through social construction, and their mission is to bring together scholars and practitioners concerned with social processes essential for construction of reason, knowledge, and human value, and their application in relational collaborative practices around the world. Truly a postmodern institute, and you can go there to find out about all the resources and educational offerings that they have. So whether we're bringing you pioneers like Harleen Anderson, or we're delving into topics that matter to you the most, the practitioner, the systemic therapist. We love hearing from you. You are the people that drive the content on our show. So please drop us a line. You can reach me at elicaram.com. That's info at elicaram.com. E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. Drop us a line on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. And the AMFT is simply at the AAMFT. Join the conversation. You can find us wherever you find your favorite podcast. I'm partial to Apple Podcasts, but you can go to Google, Stitcher, and Spotify. Help us rise through the ranks of the Mental Health Podcast. Leave a review. Give us a rating. You can find all of the back installments wherever you find your favorite podcast in addition to the archive at aamft.org. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.